You may be surprised to learn that the cross did not become a central symbol of the church until the 4th century. Some say that it never should have become such an important symbol. They usually are reacting to a shame-based theology of the cross, which isn't what we preach and teach at Second Presbyterian Church. However, the cross is central to the story told by the Gospels. And so, this Lent, we will preach Christ and Him crucified, just as the Apostle Paul said we should do. We've titled our series, Lift High the Cross, borrowed from the famous hymn with the same title. We will look at what the cross reveals about us and about God. We will speak of sin. Yes, we will. But speak also of the grace and hope of the cross and how human dignity is encouraged and not destroyed. Give a listen. If you want to hear the prayers and music of the worship surrounding the sermon, find us on YouTube or online at sprez.org. Let us pray. Holy God, if there is anything said from this pulpit that is not according to your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe and believing obey. Amen. For those of you who play Wordle every morning, forgive me while I explain the game. You type a five-letter word, and each letter goes into a box. And after you type the word, a box turns gray if a letter is not in the word, yellow if the letter is in the word but is in the wrong box, and green if the letter is in the right place. And then with those color clues, you have five more chances to guess the right word. I'm in a family text message group where we share our scores every morning. I am not the best in the group. Daughter Rachel has this uncanny ability to guess in two tries. But I usually come up with the word that the game is looking for. Because the game keeps my stats, I know that I am successful 95% of the time. Now, I am sure that many of you do better than that, and there's no need for you to email me your stats. <laughs> but my point is, is that I usually come up with the right word. But there was this one day when on the second guess, I got every letter of the word right but one, and all four letters were in the right boxes. I had green, 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 gray, green. I had S-H-A something E, and I had four chances to guess one lousy letter. So I guessed shade. Nope, try again. I guessed shake. Nope. I guessed shape. Nada. Now I have one more chance, and I guessed share. Wrong. No more chances. And then Wordle was rude to me. <laughs> the word it was looking for came across my screen. Shame. <laughs> I didn't know the game could be so judgy. 
with the passage that I'm about to read, if you stop where your pew Bible encourages you to stop, judgment is what will get said and shame is what you will feel. The New Testament did not have chapter divisions until the 16th century. Most of the chapter divisions make sense, but my dad once clued me in with our passage that it does not. If you stop at the end of chapter 13 of John, all Peter can hear is shame. But I'm not going to follow your pew Bible's guidance, but rather the guidance of Jesus who has more to say. Listen for Jesus' word to Peter and listen for God's word to you. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow me later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And there, chapter 13 stops, but Jesus keeps talking. He goes on to say, and I'm going to paraphrase a bit, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, my way, my truth, my life, the way to the Father is through me. If you really know me, you know my Father. From now on, you do know him. You've seen him. The word of the Lord. What does the cross reveal about us? We should be ashamed. I mean, the cross certainly reveals sin and guilt. The execution of an innocent man will do that. Be in a mood as John Calvin was and take that revelation to the extreme and you can say it reveals the T of TULIP, the five points of traditional Calvinism, the T that is our total depravity. The idea that we are totally depraved as heard in prayers of confession offered over the centuries in Protestant churches. We Presbyterians frequently prayed the prayer where we identified ourselves as miserable sinners and confessed that there is no health in us. That sounds harsh. It's not as harsh as when Lutherans confess to God that they deserve thy temporal and eternal punishment. I was an actor trained in Shakespeare, and Shakespeare knew that if you had plosives like tea, you could really use them with harsh words by spitting them out, our temporal and eternal punishment. These classic prayers of confession are saying, God, we deserve whatever you'll throw our way. Now, I do not normally use the term total depravity, except in classes about theology, because I think it overstates and easily leads to a shame-based spirituality. It's as if all virtue was lost in the fall. 
I challenged that in my sermon, Original Virtue. You can find it online. It's a good sermon. Sin is not the absence of virtue. It's the perversion of it. Overstating depravity is my problem with chapter 13 ending the way it does. Peter thinks too highly of himself. He thinks anything Jesus can do, I can do. Not realizing that he does not have the level of courage he thinks he does. Not realizing what Jesus already knows, that powerful forces have conspired and Jesus' arrest and execution is a foregone conclusion at this point. And certainly not realizing that the work that God is doing through Jesus cannot be done through another. For chapter 13 to end where it does is to have Jesus harshly rebuking Peter, shaming Peter. You say you will die for me? Hardly. Before the rooster announces the the dawn, before the rooster announces the sun, you'll have denied knowing me not once, but three times. And if I were to end the chapter where it does and we were to say the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, the word would be to Peter and maybe to us, You don't have anything to offer that would be of any help, so hush. And that's right, some would say. That's how people come to Christ. That realization is what sends us to our knees in absolute desperation to beg for God's mercy and help. And truth be told, I've been around long enough to know that's exactly how it has to work with some people. Recovery folks say it, rehabilitated abusers say it, people who finally learn how to be a good friend or spouse or partner say it. Sometimes you have to get to the end of your road, hit rock bottom, as they say, to realize that there's nothing good that can come for you to continue down this road you are on. You have to turn around. That's what the word repent means. You have to turn around before you can begin building a new life based on grace. But I do not think that shame is the best first building block to build a child's life upon. Some, and I imagine there might be a few sitting in the sanctuary, some have experienced moral injury for having grown up in homes where as children they were taught that they were born sinners and that they would never get to heaven unless they despise themselves for how bad they are and ask for God's rescue. You are depraved are not words I will say to Emory or to children of this church. I get what the doctrine is saying. I accept and I will teach and preach that there is no part of us that is left untouched by the tendency to think too much of ourselves, sins of strength, or to think too little of ourselves, sins of weakness. As someone said in a Presbyterian Outlook article, with every virtue comes a vice, and tied to every righteous agenda is self-interest. Was I thinking too little of myself when I didn't tell you that the someone who wrote that article was me? Am I thinking too much of myself in asking that question, letting you know that the one who wrote that article was me? You can find the article online. It's a good one. (laughs) I leave those as rhetorical questions. My point is, 
that while I don't often use the words total depravity, I am fine with talking about how we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, that we cannot perfect ourselves. And we need the grace of God who sees not just sinners, but children. The cross does reveal our sin. Yes, it does. And you're going to hear that point made multiple times in our sermon series. But I think even more, the cross reveals our humanity. The cross reveals that we are not gods who can rise above our limits, but we are human and we just need to accept that. Because Jesus who dies submits to the limits of being human, there is more to be found in the cross than condemnation of sin. There can be found the affirmation that God found human life worth living. We will not be perfect. But if God finds life among us worth living despite having to die, then life is worth living despite our having to die. By accepting death, Jesus showed us how to live with all of our limitations and imperfections. We can still show some compassion. We can still stand up for what is right. We can still show mercy. We can still love each other in a way that reflects how Jesus loved. Let's go back to the exchange between Jesus and Peter and pick up at the beginning of chapter 14. If Peter's sin of pride was just exposed, if Jesus just let him know that he will not and he cannot do what is only for Jesus to do, he goes on to make sure that Peter is not condemned or rejected. Peter, all of you, in my father's house, there's lots of room. There's enough room for you, Peter, even though you can't be what you vow to be. You are not God, but you are family. Last week, in my sermon, you can find it online, I said that there is a difference between illustration and definition. There's also a difference between sin and limitation. The cross can lead us to confess the first. It can also lead us to accept the latter. Confess those things that we did and were capable of not doing or ought to have done and were capable of doing, but also accept that there are limits to what we can know. There are limits to what we can do. And there are some things that we can't do that others can do. There are some things that only God can do, such as forgive and make room for those that we most hate as our enemies. I talked about David Zoll's book, Low Anthropology, in a sermon not that many Sundays ago. You can find it online. Zoll talks about how it is important that we understand this difference between sin and limitation. He says that we can find a self-acceptance at the cross if we will accept that there is an inevitability to our getting things wrong, making mistakes, having to learn, falling short of what we expect of ourselves, needing to ask forgiveness. 
If you were there that Sunday, you'll remember that he said that he says that there's a difference between this high anthropology, which has these unachievable expectations for being acceptable in God's eyes and our own eyes, and a low anthropology, which sets expectations based on what is realistic and what is possible because we're human. His book can be based on a text that is a quote, perfection is the enemy of progress. I said earlier that there are sins of pride, thinking too highly of yourselves, and sins of weakness, thinking too little of ourselves. Well, if we confuse limitations with sins, both sins are somehow joined. In assuming that we can achieve some ideal to be always true in our thoughts and actions, to achieve perfect justice, to root out completely some personal or social evil that we are fighting, to wipe away whatever ism that plagues us. We, as Peter did, commit the sin of pride, thinking that we are capable of only what God can do. And then, when we inevitably fail, we commit the sin of weakness and are left with nothing but blame and shame. Yes, arrogant pride and self-loathing might be different from each other, but they are fraternal twins. Having just burst Peter's high anthropology bubble and reminding Peter that he's only human, Jesus then reminds Peter that he's also God's child who belongs in God's home. And then after that conversation, Jesus died on the cross under, let's say, less than perfect circumstances. But before he dies, he asks that those who made this happen be forgiven because they have limits. They don't understand what they're doing. And if we understand from this that God forgives us while we were yet sinners, then certainly God forgives us for being human as if that needed forgiving at all. With his being crucified, the self-righteous bubbles of political and religious powers are burst. Our pretensions to perfect righteousness are burst. And we are reminded what harm we can do when we forget our limitations. But then in Jesus asking for our forgiveness from the cross, we are reminded, limited humans though we are, that we are God's children. And if God accepts our limitations, and if we can do the same, it works a strange alchemy. It frees us to show some compassion on ourselves and on others. It helps us to understand how we need each other. We learn to abandon the habits of cancel culture, virtue signaling, and self-righteous bullying of those who make the mistake of making a mistake. Because we've got to grant others the grace that we need. And then you know what? By surrendering the expectation of perfection, we might actually grow as individuals. The impatient might become a bit more patient. The quick-tempered might become a little more under control. 
The racist, less racist. The liar, more truthful. The self-centered, a bit more considerate. By God's grace, we can grow into better selves. And so it is for our world. History is this ebb and flow, and certainly things can get worse. But those who are not able to notice when and where things have gotten better in terms of social ills like poverty, violence, race relations, dysfunction in families, education, whatever, those who are so good at seeing the failures that they cannot see the good can, by seeing failure, contribute to failure. Those who can accept the limitations of what is possible in a world who may not receive the praise of the medieval church promise for martyrs and saints, they might though become what the Reformed tradition has said is always possible for us to become. Those who actually can make some kind of difference, however imperfect. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Brothers and sisters in sin. Brothers and sisters of our species who will make mistakes, who have much to learn, and who will fail at perfection. Hear this. Our humanity is a cross that Jesus took on himself by living and dying as we must live and die. To take his cross on ourselves is to accept the reality of our flaws and limits. It is to know that we are loved by God anyway and that there is a place for us in God's home. And it's then to live with faith and hope by grace, bearing witness not to what we cannot be and do, but to what by God's grace is actually possible. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.